0: So, uh, welcome everybody uh, to the second in this series of talks on contemplation of death and dying. It's amazing how many people are interested in this (laughs) topic. So for those who didn't pick up the homework and uh, also a Xerox copy of uh, the Marana Sati Sutra are welcome to do so uh, at the table there um, after the talk is over. And uh, I think these will be sort of guides uh, to uh, this particular sutta will be a guide to the rest of the talks as they unfold. Got it off the internet. <laughs> it's amazing what's on that thing. <laughs> so tonight um, I want to continue the um, investigation into uh, death and dying. And again I'd like to say that uh, The, the talk is only uh, the tip of the experiential iceberg, and really where the talk bears fruit is in following through with the homework and really making it a serious uh, inquiry in the course of your week. You have to live with this subject literally. You have to live with death in er- order for it to start penetrating and having an effect in a, on the perceptions and ways we live. So to come and listen is fine, but it's a little bit like going to church unless you follow through with, uh, with some of the experiential exercises that we have here. And we'll go into that uh, later on. So I thought tonight uh, I'd like to sort of take apart um, some of the Buddhist ways of looking at death and dying. Uh, for those of you who know my style, I'm not uh, usually very traditional in how I align my uh, talks up with the suttas. Some fa- sometimes they <laughs> seem to go very <laughs> diverge very um, steeply from each other. But th- for these series, I really would like to look at what the Buddha talked about because he had a lot to say about this subject, and. Um, to see if we could unravel uh, some of what he meant in, in his um, exalting the monks to look at death and dying on an ongoing basis. And start off with a story, um, one time a, uh, someone came to the Buddha and said, uh, probably out of a great deal of fear, uh, the person said, Do all mortals fear death? and the Buddha said no not everyone fears death only those who thirst after sense pleasures or thirst after the body or perform a lifetime of unwholesome deeds or are confused about the way things are fear death (laughs) well when I look at that list (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> There's a lot of me in each one of those <laughs> phrases. So I, I thought maybe we could pull them apart and look at them and see perhaps what he meant when he talked about thirst after sense pleasures. Um, and I think we all get a sense sometimes in ourselves, we certainly see the patterns of um, crazy, craving stimulation craving uh, some sort of excitement through experience, through stimulation. And that we, uh, Ajahn Chah had a beautiful way of looking at that. Um, He used to say, well take your um, deepest and most gratifying sensation and notice that it has a beginning a middle, a middle, and a death, an ending. And he says, you see, that's that sensation, no matter what it is, is only that much. It's only that much. And uh, for a long time I lived with that mantra, well this is only that much. It's only that much. And all the different stimulations that I could muster It was always only that much. And yet, somehow there's sort of a falling forward in most of us to try to get to the next stimulation, to try to get to the next one. Before the death of that one, we try to place another one and continue the life sort of like dotted lines, dashed lines, trying to, as best we can, move from one to another. And that... uh, that kind of propelling off balance into life obviously doesn't settle very well with the concepts or idea of death. So that somebody who is always moving towards greater and greater desire, towards more and more, wouldn't settle very well uh, with the fact that there will be an end to that, a perceived end to that stimulation, which is death. And so they would fight or rebel against the concept of death. And so, those who thirst after sense pleasures, of course, would uh, not would be mortals who feared death. And then those who thirst after the body. Um, I I uh, saw. I saw a um, photograph of a um, 1930s movie star, and I can't remember who it was, so I don't want to say just a name. But I remember she was a very fam- famous movie star, and that, uh, and this was filmed in the 60s, sometimes or the 70s, and uh, she was trying to cover her face so that the uh, no one could record her, her face facial features because she was the caption said that she was um, trying to stay away from the cameras because she wanted to hide her age and how age had robbed her of the beauty of her youth and I thought my god I mean to live with that picture and idea of ourselves as being eternally young uh, and not not to um, be able to to live in harmony with the aging process. For me the aging process has a, has a is a very rich experience. It's not pleasant necessarily um, but it's very rich uh, and it's the learning is enormous. I say that uh, having reached my 50th birthday this year and just seeing how just doesn't work like it did when it was 20 and 30. Uh, And how I can uh, cause myself so much internal agony and suffering and just not recognizing or allowing the fact of my aging to express itself as it does. And when we're faced with the kind of bombardment of youthful figures that cover our magazines, And that we're somehow to live in the concepts of youth even as we age. It seems to me that uh, we're off center in this particular uh, phrase of the Buddhas and that there are going to be a lot of mortals that fear death in this country based upon our thirst after the body and eternal youth. Facelifts and implants skin treatments. The third phrase there was um, all mortals, uh, those who perform a lifetime of unwholesome deeds fear death. Someone who just lives for their own sense of selfishness in the world. Who doesn't take into consideration other people. I've seen many people face death uh, who have had a life in which um, there were often uh, uh, a lot of history baggage in their history. And it's interesting how death uh, sort of pushes all of that out of your skin. It's like uh, like a, doing a sauna with the sweat just coming out. It's it just forces uh, history to it to the surface. I mean because how you can't keep rationalizing your lifestyle. I mean at some point you have to literally turn back and face it. And there was a one rather dramatic story I remember of a, a man who was an alcoholic uh, his whole life and he uh, abused his family physically and verbally. And so he, as he was dying, uh, he was trying to make amends uh, for the long suffering history that his family had had together and of course his family wasn't just going to become warm and loving to him merely because he was dying. They were um, really um, angry and hateful and so this it wasn't a very pleasant house to go in. And this man uh, kept having recurrent nightmares time and time again of drunks coming into his room and um, uh, physically abusing him as he in his dreams and he was just reliving or trying to heal himself to the very lifestyle that he had led you see and how you know we think we can get away with it we think we get away with things until we put our death in perspective to the very events of our lives and then we see we don't get away with anything Because all of that comes in full view. We have to. How could it not? And so somebody who has lived a life of of crime or just uh, disregard for other people or harm, um, I'm sure there is a lot of fear and trepidation in which they go into that moment of death because of out of the history that they have to face but also whatever they project in terms of the judgment of of god or whatever so that's a that's a rather sobering thought isn't it because most of us have have uh, many many things that we feel regretful of and really uh, if if we, a life of mindfulness is really a life in which It brings that awareness of our actions, moment after moment, to the surface so that we don't get away with anything. All the time. We always know where we're falling. I mean, you you can't even rationalize it to yourself anymore because you know you're doing that. (laughs) Uh, It's always one step ahead of whatever we put on top of it. And uh, you try, you can't shake it off, you know, you can't forget it because you know you're forgetting it. (laughs) (laughs) And it just sort of follows you around. Well, it it has that, it has ultimately, you're working on things as that mindfulness is there in the same way that death works on us. And then uh, the fourth phrase, and perhaps... um, the one that I find myself most connected with is that uh, mortals fear death when they are confused about the way things are. (laughs) If the rest of the categories didn't include you (laughs) I think most of (laughs) them get lumped into this other one. Um, Confusion about the way things are and Uh, I mean, ultimately, uh, uh, we spend a lot of time confused about the way things are. Uh, But if we look at just the, the confusion about death itself and the way death is, then we're also confused about the way and the purpose and meaning of life. And I think that that may be what the Buddha was meaning here was that uh, in that just confusion about that life is somehow lived at the expense or in contrast to death and that those two things are in some way antagonistic to one another and that just isn't seen the way things are and that we really need to start uh, bridging uh, those two halves uh, the shadow and the persona healing that rift again. And that, uh, more than anything, is what these talks are, uh, the aim of these talks is, is to, um, is to start focusing on death as being, uh, I mean, even to say life and then to say death is to separate the two, they're really the same thing, moment after moment. When we understand, I, I see this um, a lot. I'm I'm developing this theme as I give the talks and um, working with it uh, in many, many different ways. Uh, but just in the sitting meditation tonight, just not allowing the penetration of the past to move at all into the present. Just that it ends. And just to see that the de- the life of the past and the death of the moment is really what we would call uh, the vitality of life. Is really in the death of the past, not in the perpetuation of the past. Although it is in the perpetuation of the past that most of us rest as being life. But that isn't, that isn't life at all. And that we have to die to that history. We have to die to what it is that propel the momentum the stories, the content, all of the things which have propelled ourselves in the past to really know and to be reincarnated in this moment into life. And so life and death are a theme that follow Dharma practice of course into its very essence. So we come to the uh, Marana Sati Sutta Um, And uh, you don't have to turn to page three of the, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) we're not that detailed here. Um, But the Buddha said of this particular, Marana Sati means mindfulness. Sati is mindfulness. And M-A-R-A-N-A is death, death. Mindfulness of death. Mindfulness of death. He said of all the footprints that of the elephant is most supreme. He says similarly of all the mindfulness meditations that of death is supreme. So that's that's a pretty good uh, endorsement. Makes me want to go to the next step here. And then if you look uh, if you look at what some of the other people have said I, I I read, sometimes I read these things, I say, wow, that's amazing. Plato said, true devotees of self-knowledge practice nothing else but how to die. And then there's the uh, Woody Allen rule, who said, I don't mind dying, I just don't want to be around when it happens. <laughs> and I guess that's pr- pretty much why most of, us <laughs> how most of us relate to this. Plato be damned. <laughs> um, actually, I had a, uh, I have a friend who uh, visited me uh, about a month ago, he and his wife, and he's an airplane, uh, he's a pilot for American Airlines, and it was right during a period of time when there were a lot of planes that were Going down like there were two or three crashes in the course of this week, and so I was sitting and I at the table with him, and I said, uh, "Bob, have you uh, have you thought about all these crashes that are going down around you?" And his wife says, "We don't think about those things." <laughs> and I said, "Oh, okay." <laughs> and uh, I, it was just it was a real indication to me about I mean here's somebody who lives in the air for his job and how how he must I mean uh, you know there there must be some acknowledgement of the fragility of his job in relationship to uh, these airplane uh, just in the same way as we read about automobile accidents and think they'll never happen to us actually the greater proportion of accidents happen on the ground of course than in the air but if you're a pilot you certainly must Think about the other, and yet how uh, his wife just would not let any thought of that possibility, or any contemplation of that possibility, in. And it's how how rigid we keep that and hold that idea out of our minds. So I remember when I was a. But that's not true for meditators, right? We really want to be there when it happens. We want to be open. You know, we want to be. We want to be in some kind. Of, you know, we we don't want to hide from the truth. We want to try to be totally uh, there for the for our death. Um, so it, it was with that kind of um, spirit that I remember uh, in my first few years of meditation, of very prolonged meditation practice. I said, my God, I'm gonna go into this subject of death anytime." I make that kind of statement in myself. (laughs) (laughs) I know that there's something lurking there (laughs) that's probably scared to death. But uh, uh, in any case, I went out at midnight to a graveyard in a cemetery and sat there in the cemetery, sat all night in a cemetery, somehow thinking that that would, I think it was on Halloween or something, I don't know. (laughs) And it was just like, I said, you know, I could have been anywhere. And it didn't do anything to me. <laughs> it was just sitting there, <laughs> I wasn't afraid, I wasn't anything. It was just sitting at a cemetery. Um, so I don't think I got too far into my death meditation that way because all I was trying to do was um, attack it. But reality set in one day when I was a monk and I was uh, going on alms round in the morning. Uh, and i um walking along the beach of this particular monastery I was in. Um, and I'd, I'd walk about oh, 45 minutes to an hour to a small little village and they would fill my bowl up and then I'd walk back. So I was doing that every morning. So this one morning I started walking down the beach and way up ahead of me I saw uh, something lying in the sand and I saw another villager looking down at this lump in the sand. So I didn't recognize what it was until I got right up to it. And it turned out it was a dead body that had floated up on the shore of the, of the Gulf of Thailand. And um, I stopped there, I just, really, I just remember feeling how dramatic it was and on the beauty of this beach with the sun rising up in the early morning and there was this dead body just floating up on the sand. And the villager, and I didn't speak uh, and do not speak uh, very good Thai, but I could piece together what he was saying, and it was uh, one of the Vietnam vote people who I, uh, he thinks had been attacked by pirates and whose body had been pushed into the shore. And I just remember feeling, uh, and then walking on beyond that, you know, just carrying that image. And that was a very different way of allowing death in than sort of forcing myself into the cemetery and saying, okay, by God, I'll look at this thing called death. Because it's in that very sort of um, abrasive style that you don't even consider death. Death is much more subtle. Has much more influence. You see, in that very, uh, that, that sort of charging into it is really an indication of blocking yourself out of death out from you. Of keeping it at bay. But in the crispness of a morning when your heart's open to just the beauty of the walk and suddenly in contrast to the beauty of that moment there is a dead corpse in front of you. There's nothing you can do to keep death out. It comes in. and it, dawned on me how uh, most of us, even as we approach this subject, really don't want to let it in too deeply. Because it's a personal subject. It speaks to each one of us. And each one of us is going to be touched by this thing. talk about a Nietzsche, change. You know, change is the change of the season, it's not the change of me. What's this going to be like when we die? You see, this topic and this sutta requires enormous respect. And As a matter of fact, I was cautioned about uh, bringing this subject up because uh, the person who cautioned me said that um, people of poor physical or mental health uh, who are, or, or who are strongly dominated by desire or aversion. This is not, an, uh, this can be a very troublesome reflection. And so, but I I feel like we're sort of self-screening here. Um, I'm not, uh, you know, people who come to the talk, I feel, have a certain openness to it. And then the homework, I think, is the real interplay with the deeper aspects of this practice. But I do want people to be aware of the power of this meditation. Why would he say that of all the footprints, you know, he doesn't, uh, he's not given to hyperbole, you know. Of all the mindfulness meditations, of all the skillful means that he knew about, that of death is supreme. Well, if we're holding on in one of those four areas, I mean strongly, not just, but if we are thirsting after sense pleasures, or, or thirsting after the body, or performing lifetime of unwholesome deeds, or confused about the way things are, there is going to be fear in relationship to death. And therefore it's an unpleasant, it's an unpleasant reflection. You can't expect this reflection to be pleasant. It's going to bring things up. Of course it's going to bring things up. If that's one of the reasons that we do it, is in order to percolate up The fears that uh, control us and keep us very self-contained and very safe. And, you know, it takes the precepts, the sangha, and the practice. It takes all three of the triple gems to really keep us steady in this reflection. It takes each other, you know. It takes the precepts because the precepts, give us some ethical ways to live, give us some sensitivity to life, give us some vulnerability and some some openness um, rather than just moving into selfishness and aversion. It takes <coughs> uh, the pre uh, precept, it takes the sangha because and I think this is one of the real beauties is that the very concept, the reflection on death, brings us all together as a community. I mean there's no one in the community that isn't going to die. It's not as if, it's, a, it's not pity. How can, you can't pity somebody who's going to die when I'm going to die too. You see, that's not, there's no pity in it. It's, you're right there with everybody, equal, absolutely equal. Death is the level playing field. I mean it's, you know, the kings and the pauper. And so, it's it's a great humbling experience to open up to that. And so, it takes each other in order for us to use each other to to help us understand this. It's not a frivolous meditation. Not at all. If we take this seriously... We're going to need the precepts, the practice of equanimity, and the Sangha. But it's not a scare meditation. It's an unpleasant one, as I mentioned, but it orients us to the reality that we normally avoid. And when we do that, we are facing the obstructions, the things that we impose upon reality, that keep it at bay, keep it distant, It confronts, we confront our pretension, our pretending that reality is different than the way it is. And we hold reality locked in our perception and in our ideas and our imagination to fix it. So that we can be safe within it. And so when we face death we look through those imaginations because nobody's going to Imagine, the very sense of imagination itself blocks that, screens out that death. So we open up to it and we begin to let re- reality in. Ultimately, as I mentioned last week, we have to have faith that it's, the facts are friendly, that this is going to be beneficial to us. But, you know, how can we not do this if we are genuinely interested in spiritual growth? Isn't it a little bit like a baker who claims to be the best baker that ever lived and is afraid to touch dough? Wants nothing to do with wheat or flour. I mean the essence of our spiritual awakening is to awaken to this subject really. And all aspects of it. It's not just physical death. Physical death is really becomes the is it's just one of the events that marks our lives. It's the death of all of the different qualities and images and ideas about ourselves and really uh, the essence of meditation is the Marana Sati Sutra. And that's why I believe that the Buddha was so strong on this point. This is where it takes you. Now do you want to come or not? Or do you want to be uh, love and Life Meditation. I'll just meditate on going to Hawaii. Crystals. One of the great uh, commentaries uh, of Buddhist literature is um, was uh, done by Buddha Gosa and he said Only two of the forty forms of meditation practice are always beneficial. The development of friendliness, which is metta, meditation, and the recollection of death. He said that uh, you'll give up the search for what is uh, unworthy. In other words, you'll put things in perspective so that you see things see where life should be uh, focused on. And he says it promotes energy and vitality. So let's look at some of the ways that this contemplation can be helpful. And then uh, the next couple of weeks we'll go into the reflection itself. Although we've been working on it from day one with these homework assignments. Okay, the way um, contemplating death and dying can be helpful. Many aspects of of the way we live collapse under death's eye. Our priorities change. We become less future oriented, less obsessive. So the future doesn't hold that much certainty. It's really, you know. I mean the only reason we think that the future holds that much certainty is that we're denying death. Right? We don't think it can happen to us. And therefore why focus uh, on the present when I can live in the future because I'm assured that my life is going to continue. So with reflection on death we begin to understand the tentativeness of that future. How precarious it is. How fragile. That future is, how fragile life is in its essence. Certainly the events of last week, the deaths of close friends, relatives, can wake us up to that fact if we're willing if we're willing to identify with that. Many other aspects of our life become even more precious. I had a, I was working with a hospice patient, and um, this couple had been together probably 60 years, and his wife, um, who was uh, dying, uh, she said that her husband, uh, for the first uh, 59 years of their marriage, Uh, never told her that uh, he loved her and now in the last year since she had developed cancer he comes and tells her many times in the course of the day that somehow when I talked to the husband and I said well what's what's happening he says well you know I, I took her for granted I can't do that anymore I know I'm gonna lose her any day and so every day he wakes up to his heart he wakes up to his affection and his affection uh, is um, verbalized in ways that he never could when he uh, saw her as living, you know, longer than he did. That's important. So we began to hold the preciousness of things. Uh, the story that reminds me of that is uh, the young 45-year-old woman. Uh, in Massachusetts looking out right on, it was in Marshfield, Massachusetts, right on the ocean. She lived her whole life in this beautiful home that overlooked the ocean. And I was with her in the morning when the sun was coming up and she said, oh, I've seen that sun rise over the ocean every morning since I was a little girl, but I've never appreciated it like I do now that I know I'm dying. Have you ever had the experience of being very sick for a number of days or in the hospital or something and then coming back to health and going, God, I can't believe how precious health is. I just can't believe how good it feels to be healthy, to feel good. And How quick does that feeling fade? Do you lose that? We lose what we have all the time. And you see what that does is just that simple reflection. Where does that take you? It takes you right here. It takes you right here in the vitality of the moment where the senses are alive and awake because it's only through the waking of those senses that the world can have any impact so that you can appreciate it. And so that all these reflections really our calls to awaken, our calls to open and to be alive, to express that aliveness moment after moment. And as I mentioned, um, it deepens our understanding of being together. Being together in our aliveness. That we are all here really in the heart of things, if I can put a certain perspective on what life is about, it's about to understand this thing called death, really. I mean that's that's what it's all about and we're all here together to understand that. And anytime you start elevating somebody up in your self-evaluation equation or devaluing yourself in that equation or enhancing yourself or in any way comparing yourself to another reflect on death just reflect on death it seems to me that it brings us all back together again it won't allow vanity how can it allow vanity you see so it brings us it ultimately it takes us back into our heart Takes us back into the affection of our humility, back into the affection of our equality, where everybody—the only thing that keeps us out of our hearts—is the fact that we're constantly judging ourselves in comparison to other people. So that's what death can do. As Tikhna Khan said, it can give you a new freshness beyond the ordinary. And death for me has served as a coach, as as a coach in living in the present moment. It's like you're feeling pride and feeling good. Feeling like the world is going to be there around forever. Just go to a cemetery. And it brings our fear out in the open. Which is um, for those of people of real self-knowledge and who love self-knowledge. Uh, fear is what they want to see. They want to see the patterns, the uh, intimations of sorrow in their life, the ways that they color and uh, configure the world into, um, into their own isolation, into uh, the fear and the substance and the imposed prisons that we put on. We want to see those things. And reflecting on death will bring that up. Believe me, it will bring that up. And so death allows that. It allows us to begin to work with our fears. And I'm I'm not real interested um, in talking about life after death or the bardo states or reincarnation or any of that because I think it takes the sharpness off of it. I think it dulls the blade. I think it, that's what we look for. We look, I want to learn what the bardo states are like, right? Why are we doing that? We're just trying to perpetuate the same. (laughs) We're just, we're not using death then. We're just perpetuating life and death, into death. I think death is an ending and there you can't go beyond you you can't see through that into some kind of heaven or if you do that then we're not dealing with what death's teaching really is. It's the ending of time. It's the ending of time. Now what are you going to do? What's the mind do with the ending of time? (laughs) It's like the Munch Scream, <laughs> right? That's, that's where we should be, is right at that screen. I, I mean, I've just um, writing this book, or I've written this book, so the guy calls me today and says, uh, I don't like your title, I want to put a new title on it. And so I said, well, what title do you want to put on it? I I call it uh, a gift of freedom lessons from the dying and he says no I want to call it something sharper he says I want to call it practice dying I said well I don't know about practice dying (laughs) it's not uplifting enough for me so I don't know look for it in one title or the other I don't know what it's going to be called but the point is I think that uh, we do keep trying to you know, to make things, even hospice workers, they say, they have the hardest time saying, Jim died today, Jim passed on, Jim, Jim, uh, well you know, yeah, left this body, passed on, all the different, because we take the sharpness out of it, you know, we want to blunt it somehow, we want to make it nicer, But the fear is really the lesson. It's the ways that we're holding ourselves against it. There wouldn't be any fear if we weren't in aversion or in contrast to it. So, enough, okay? Just for a moment, and perhaps we'll get a chance to do this right at the end. Feel your breath, feel where you are. Just listening to the sounds around us. And just bringing ourselves into this moment. It's this moment that we die from. It's not some moment of fear. It's not ghoulish or morbid. It's a moment just like this moment. Full of the richness of being alive. Just like now. Could we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening.